Today's scripture reading will be from 2 Samuel 1, 1 through 4. In our pew Bibles, this is on page 254. So, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. This is the word of the Lord. New book. Yay. <laughs> well, we'll be here for a few years. And uh, no, I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to hurry this one a little bit quicker. We're going to do the whole chapter. So only four verses read, but we're actually going to look at the 27 verses in chapter 1. These historical books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, they're, they're some of my favorite. And I have this mentor of mine that I've had since my college years. He was my Old Testament theology professor, taught 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Like this, this is my jam. I, I, love, I love these historical books. So um, contemplated going a little slower so we can nerd out a little bit more on things. But I, I just wanted to like quicken the pace a little bit because I've um, been here for over 20 years and like haven't taught through the entire Bible yet, so want to like get that going, you know. So um, I think most of us are familiar with that POW MIA flag uh, that flies over a, a lot of like veterans halls and different military bases and things like that. And that flag is there to to remind us of the prisoners of war. It's there to remind us of people who are missing in action. And it's just one of those really, really terrible things for, for loved ones to hear. And if you can just imagine being that loved one behind closed doors in your home, and then you hear that knock when you know your loved one is away in battle, um, it's usually not a, a good one. Uh, sometimes to report that their loved one has fallen or just missing or a prisoner. and and that pain and that anguish of losing a loved one. And so I'm, I'm kind of giving you kind of like this somber mood to tone, to absorb, because this is kind of what David and his army felt, uh, knowing what happened to the Israelite army, what happened to Saul, what happened to Jonathan. And so this, this chapter is a chapter of lament that is recording for us this battle on Mount Gilboa, and if you want to just look on your phone or if you have in your Bible, sometimes they have maps. It's just northeast of Israel. Um, uh, not that beautiful of a place anymore. I think there's like a telephone tower thing on there and stuff like that. But every, uh, I forget which season, I think it's spring, they have like this flower of, the Mount, of Mount Gilboa that just blooms there and it's, it's purple. It's really, really beautiful. And there's not very much that is there to commemorate what's happened, but um, it, it's this mountain that's still there, Mount Gilboa. And that's where the Philistines defeated the Israelites, and, and David gets this bad news. And in the beginning of 2 Samuel, where we're entering, it's just a string of bad news. And so we're entering a story where, like, 
It's carrying on from 1 Samuel. It, 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 there's really no break in the Hebrew Bible. It just kind of goes straight through. And so this is kind of where we're picking up the story, the chronology of this historical book. Now, 2 Samuel, as it's carrying on from 1 Samuel, as this continuous book, it's, um, it's only taken us 12 years to go back to 1 Samuel, by the way. But I'm trying to set that tone for us and that, that this lament is somber and it's sad. And in chapter one, we're given a narrative of what happened, um, uh, verses one through 18. And then we're also given something more poetic towards the end of uh, the chapter, verses 19 through 27 from David. So first we're gonna take a look at that narrative piece in verses one through 18, and then we'll, we'll take a look at that poem at the end of the chapter. So in the, in the first few verses, we, we read of this guy who walks into David's camp in Ziklag. Now Ziklag is a, a territory in Philistia, it's about 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem, so a pretty good distance from Mount Goboa where Saul just died. And verse 2 records that this guy walks into David's camp, and it says, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, which is a sign of mourning, uh, a sign of, of grief. And so this guy tells David that Israel lost the battle and, and the people fled Mount Gilboa, and you can get more of those details if you look back to 1 Samuel chapter 31. He informs David that Saul and Jonathan are dead. And he came knocking on David's door to deliver this horrible news of people that David loved dearly who had fallen in battle. And so David doesn't really take this guy at his word. And he asks this guy in verse 5, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Then this guy starts explaining himself in verses 6 through 10 what happened, which is actually a lot of airtime when it comes to biblical narratives, like five verses is a long time. But this guy is essentially saying, and it starts out by saying, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Goboa. That's not a good way to start things, right? Like when you start a story, that's just, somebody asks you, it's just by chance, I just happened to be there. Um, and then he continues on in verses 6 and 7. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. Chariots and the horsemen were, were close upon him. And then when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And this guy is telling David that Saul asked for a, a mercy killing. That Saul asked him to kill him before the enemy could get to him, and then the story continues. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And so here he's painting a picture for David that there was, there was no way out for, for King Saul, and the king asked for this Amalekite to kill him, so, so he did. And so that was his story. Well, you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 31, it gives us a different account. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul is badly wounded by arrows. And then starting in chapter 31, verse 4, it reads this. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me, which they did. They hung him on a, on a wall. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So obviously, someone's lying. These aren't the same stories. So 1 Samuel 31 is the account given to us by 
this author, this Israelite narrator, giving us an account of what happened in Mount Goboa. Second Samuel chapter 1, we're given this account by an Amalekite. And the writer is pointing out that, Second Samuel chapter 1, that Amalekite is lying. That's not what happened. That the Amalekite is not telling the truth. He is twisting it with elements of truth, but it's not the entire truth. He's telling truth, he's telling his truth, but he's not telling the truth. Now why? Because he wants things to go really well for him. Right? He wants to be set up for the rest of his life. He wants a good retirement plan to be known as a hero, a guy that brought Saul's crown back to Israel and his armlet, and he wants things to be set up. So he's conveniently twisting this truth so that he can situate himself in fame, in fortune, in comfort, in security. And it's why he brought this crown. It's why he brought this armlet to David. Because who's going to offer him more than David is going to? Because he can't offer this to anybody else for the amount that David would give him. So it's a good story, but it's just simply not the truth. And then David is like, this doesn't sound right, because David is not a dummy. David is a very experienced soldier fighting battles in a battlefield. He, he knows how this stuff works. And so how does an Amalekite, who's not a soldier, he's just like this sojourning Amalekite, by chance, happen to be on a battlefield where the king of Israel is dying, when this king would never be by himself. He would be in battle with this band of soldiers around him, including his armor bearer. So there's not a chance that you can just, by chance, be there, or that I just happen to be there. Now what most likely happened was he was snooping around to see what he can scavenge from the battlefield. This soldier has these goods. I'm going to take these and sell these. This soldier left like this armor. I can sell this. I can sell that. I'm, I'm scavenging. I'm going around. I'm looking for stuff for myself. And he does find Saul and his armor bearer dead because they would probably be one of the last ones standing. And they were shot from afar from arrows, so he's dying. And there are these chariots and people going to Saul's dead body. But he happens to be there before they get there. And so he does take Saul's armlet. He does take Saul's crown. And now he's thinking, well, do I offer them to the Philistines and try to get my payout there? Or do I offer them to the Israelites and get a payout there? Or do I go to an Amalekite? Like, where can I get the biggest payout? Well, if you offer it to the Philistines, why would they pay you anything? They'd be like, kill him and take it. There's no, no reason for them to offer him anything. If he offers it to the Amalekites, they'd be like, you're crazy. Those Israelites are going to kill us for taking that. We're, we're going to take their king's stuff. I have to offer it to David. There's no one else to offer it to. I can't offer it to any other Israelite either. I have to offer it to David. So he goes to David and thinking, I'm going to benefit from this. I'm going to get rich from this. I'm going to set myself and my family up for it. Ironic thing, though, is that if he told the truth, things might have worked out for him. If he just simply told the truth, but he wants to look like a hero. He wants to look like, hey, you know what, I... I did all these stuff, and you know, he's, he's just kind of like bringing it out, like embellishing, and, and, and he simply just lies. 
And so David has more questions for him. Verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And I think here this guy started to get nervous. This guy's an Amalekite, which means this. He lives in Israel. Amalekites lived in Israel. And he's a young guy. And he's grown up in Israel. So he is familiar with the customs of Israel. He knows Israelite customs. He knows how the king of Israel is regarded. That he is anointed by God. And as God's anointed, that king is sacred. It means he's untouchable. You cannot lay a hand on him. And so this is why David didn't kill Saul when he had the opportunities. When you look back in 1 Samuel in chapter 24, he had an opportunity there. In chapter 26, he had an opportunity there. But he doesn't kill Saul. Why? He's God's anointed. That God put him there. And so God is going to be the one that's going to have to remove him. And then this Amalekite, after what David has gone through in all of 1 Samuel, running for his life, not killing Saul when he had the opportunity, this young little Amalekite guy comes by, not trained to be a soldier or anything, and says, I killed the king. How do you think David's going to feel about this? You what? Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So he's executed based off of this testimony that he gave, which was a lie, even though he really didn't do it. But according to the Israelite justice, this Amalekite is to be executed based on his own testimony, based on what he claimed, even though it was a false claim, now here's the, the practical part of all of this for us. Nothing is hidden from God. Nothing. Everything is going to be revealed. Why? Because God is truth. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's, it's, it's not about your truth, Amalekite. It's not about my truth, David. It's about what really happened. What is the truth? And so Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the Amalekite could have been set free. His truth killed him. Because it's a lie, actually. It's not the truth. It was his. And so you see, there's, there's nothing hidden from God. We can do all these different intellectual, physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual gymnastics. We can do all those things that we want. But the truth is the truth. And the truth will come out. Everything will be revealed by God that is not seen. Our motive, our intent, our heart, everything revealed. 
Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Everything will be seen. No hiding behind anything anymore. Fully exposed for the truth to prevail. The truth. No hiding behind words, no hiding behind feelings, no hiding behind emotions, nothing. Everything laid out to be seen as is. Ultimately, in God's kingdom, everything will be exposed. Everything. Every falsehood will be revealed, and the only thing that remains is the truth. That's it. I want this so bad. I mean, don't you want this? Because things are just so confusing. But I have to honestly also confess to you, I am terrified of it. But I want it. But I'm really, really terrified of it. I am very scared of it. I'm terrified because every single hypocrisy within myself is also revealed. I already know I have some hypocrisies, but I think I have some hidden ones also that are going to be shown like, oh my gosh, I did not know that I had that in me. Right? That God is going to show me all of those things within myself that I didn't even see for myself. And, you know, if I ever forget what my hypocrisies ever are, I have four daughters that make sure I will not ever forget them. Right? So if, anyone, if anyone of you out there thinks like, oh, there's nothing hypocritical about myself, um, I think your spouse may have a few things to say. But the thing is, I, I do want the truth, even though it is very, very terrifying. I do want it. Because the truth sets you free. And even though I'm terrified that God is going to reveal even more than I'm even aware of of myself, The thing that gives me comfort is that I know I'm covered by the blood of Christ. That I know I'm covered by his righteousness and then I'll be able to live through that. Even though it's going to be humiliating and embarrassing and terrifying. I'm just going to look towards Christ and be like, thank you, sorry, Uh, there's nothing I can say. Like, it's all laid out. The, the truth is there. There's, how are you going to defend yourself? And thank God. That's all I can do. Thank you. That I'd be just like that Amalekite without Jesus. Sentenced to a judgment of death. And justly so. This is just very sobering, right? Things that we might be so proud of. That there's no way that we're wrong about this. This I am right about. I suggest just taking it down a few notches. Just take it down. Because maybe what you're so proud of and what I'm so proud of is going to be revealed to be false. That it's not the truth. That it is hypocritical to the truth of God. Now, I know we've all experienced these moments when we check our phone, right? You make sure it's not on when we're talking about a particular person, right? Like, oh, am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> right? You've done that, right? 
or when you like accidentally send texts to the wrong people? <sighs> Embarrassing, right? Like I, I've done this before, where like I've sent like grocery lists to my wife. I'm going to Trader Joe's. What do you want? I send it back, thinking like she was the last text. I send it, and my friend's like, "What is this?" I was like, "Sorry, it was meant for my wife." Like you know, you you get in those moments, but I. This is like a moment of truth, though, because it's actually a good way to catch yourself if, you're, if you gossip or if you slander, because it's checking you, right? Because if you have those doubts, you're like, yeah, you're probably guilty of it, man. You're guilty of, like, gossiping. You're guilty of slander. You're guilty of something if you have to do this sort of thing, right? But, but hopefully that, that helps us. But, but sometimes it's innocent, and, and you just simply don't want to call the wrong person. It's, it's not like an incriminating thing, but it's more of like just this invasion of privacy, Right, like, like my sister and I talk about my mom all the time. It's not always bad. Like we, we just talk about mom. Like it's not a bad thing. But recently, I've been looking at my phone a lot more because, you know, I don't want to accidentally have my mom on the phone when I'm talking about her specifically right now, because right now is kind of like her her birthday. And so she's hitting this milestone birthday. So my sister and I have been doing a lot of planning and talking behind my mom's back of what we're going to do. And so she's not going to appreciate which birthday it is for her, but it's a milestone birthday. So it ends in a zero or five. So that's all you need to know. So my sister and my wife are planning things for my mom's milestone birthday. We, we don't want her to know everything about it. And it's nothing bad. It's just a feeling of being exposed because we're, we're trying to be surprising. We're trying to, you know, have things under wraps. Well, with God, like, it's all open. He's going to see everything. Or the text thing, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. But you do sometimes when you're texting back and forth with people, you want to make sure, all right, did I text it to the right person because it would be embarrassing if I didn't. And you want to make sure you're, you're not sending it to the person you didn't intend to, and it might be even just this very, very sweet text that was meant for your husband or your wife, but it ends up going to your friend. I have this friend from college, one of my closest friends. He was in my wedding party. We talked to each other all the time. We text all the time. But once I got this text from him and said, I love you. It's my friend. I love him too. It's not a big deal. It's what happened afterwards, the I love you. There are some things in there that I know weren't meant for me. <laughs> I know they weren't meant for me. And so I text him back, I love you too, but I think the other stuff is meant for your wife. I got a call so fast from him. He was so embarrassed. He was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe. I was like, dude, what you do, you do. Like, I don't want to know about it. And so, and then other times, I don't know why, maybe it's because Albert A, maybe I'm the first one on his, I don't know what it is, but sometimes I get these long reprimands from him. And it says, why'd you stay out so late? It worries me and your mother and blah, all this other stuff. And I'm, I'm thinking like, when did he talk to my mom? Like, and, and you know, he's sending these texts to his kids and he's sending them to me instead not incriminating, it's nothing bad, but some things can still be sent that are just not meant for you and they're embarrassing or whatever it may be, but 
You see, those are just these mild, mild exposures that aren't devastating. Other times, very devastating. Kind of like sin. Devastating when it's exposed and it's not dealt with because you're exposing sin to holy God and the judgment is death. To expose things you weren't hoping that would be exposed and not only exposing them, but they will be dealt with justly because God sees truth. Now we're in a time of grace. That you and I can do something and it's not like we're struck dead right away. We, we, there's a time of grace for us right now. But in God's kingdom, the return of Jesus, this is, will be a time of judgment where the truth is revealed, every falsehood, every hypocrisy, exposed, dealt with. That's the narrative of the Amalekite in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so no more lies, whether individually or corporately, no more political, governmental, educational, marital, institutional, relational lies. No more games. Every hidden hatred, jealousy, resentment, bitterness, deception, thought, agenda, design, scam, everything from anywhere on whatever spectrum you see, whatever polarization there is, on the entire thing, all of it exposed. Everything, everyone exposed. Now we'll take a look at David's poem about Saul and Jonathan next, and the significance of this is to look at how important lament, mourning, grieving are among God's people that this lament actually begins in verses 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now, did you notice the amount of time that had passed before David questioned the Amalekite any further? They mourned and wept and fasted until evening. So this Amalekite says this thing, and then instantly David and his men tore their clothes upon hearing this news about Saul's death. Then they mourned, wept, fasted until evening before they went back to the Amalekite to address the Amalekite again. And so reading this from our perspective is kind of weird, right? Like this guy comes up, he tells this lie, but then David doesn't address it right away. And so at this time, I'm wondering, like, what, what is this Amalekite thinking? Is he thinking, on one end, I got this. They've fallen for it. Look at them. They're all mourning. They're tearing their clothes. They're, and no one's bothering me. Um, I'm just going to kick back and wait for my payday. Like, I'm just going to wait. Or was he thinking, they, they know. And um, they're going to kill me. And then during this time of hours passing through, I just wonder, see, he has a grace period to tell the truth, just like we do right now, to confess our sins, to repent of them, to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that this Amalekite has this grace period right here. Hours where he can just come clean and say, like, here's what really happened. 
And I really do think David would have been like, all right, I'm not going to kill you because you didn't kill Saul. You just brought this stuff to me. So the truth has set you free. But that's not what happens. He kind of goes along with his lie. Now, what's going on here? Why aren't they addressing the Amalekite? Why are they mourning, grieving, tearing their... Why are they doing all this? Because it's obviously the more important thing. That's the more important thing. They're not looking like, let's kill this guy for what he did. Like, the more important thing is this lament, this mourning, this grieving. And the most important thing to do right then and there was to grieve for the people of God. That that's the priority. The, the, the grieving, the mourning, the lamenting are important for us to practice. And so David's poetic lament begins in verse 19, but there's an intro in verse 18. So David said that this lament is called the bow. In, in the Hebrew Bible, if you were to look that, it's called the bow. It doesn't use that pronoun it there. It says the bow. And that this should be taught to the people of Judah. And, and the Hebrew Bible has the bow instead of that pronoun it in our Bible, in that ESV Bible. And so this lament in verses 19 through 27 is entitled the bow. And it's believed that it's entitled this because David references the bow of his dear friend Jonathan in verse 22. And so they think that that's where he gets the name. Now, why does David want his army, he wants the people of Judah to be taught this lament? Because it's recording how this sad time was for them. To record how humiliating this defeat to the Philistines was at Mount Gilboa. That Israel was soundly beaten and, and it's time to grieve this loss, to, to mourn, to lament so that his army and the people of Judah will never forget what happened there. To remember this moment so that when the time comes to fight against the Philistines, they're going to be fueled by that sadness to rally Israel's honor. That the remembrance would give them this extra motivation toward victory. Now I think many of you are familiar with this, especially in sports. Right, in sports. So the Warriors just won the NBA championship. Right? They just, they just won the NBA. Now, if you look at their history, what fueled them? Grief, lament, mourning. Right? One of their superstars left a couple of seasons ago, then they had this devastating injury to one of their other superstar players, and, and almost everyone in the world is writing them off saying, there's no way. The, this dynasty is over. They won three, but how many more are they going to win in the future? Everyone's putting zeros up, right? They're, they're doing this sign. And, and then you, you have all these commentators saying, like, there's not a chance. Like, they're not as good as people think they are, that they're no longer good enough. There's no way they can win. And so they remember all of this so that when you play now, they're putting all that old commentary, they're bringing all the history back up and saying, like, remember when all these guys said this? Remember this? Remember this, everybody? See, they used it as a, as a motivation. And so when they won, all these videos about all these haters and doubters of them came out and they were pointing out to all their supposed experts. Not as expert as you guys thought, huh? Like, look at these guys. They don't know what they're talking about. See, there's a usefulness in that grieving. There's a usefulness in the lament and the grief that 
that sadness that they experienced over a couple of seasons ago isn't forever, that they're working towards that. Now notice how forgiving David is towards Saul in verses 22 through 24. Even though Saul was after his life, was wanting to kill him, still David's poems this way towards Saul. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul's returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Your daughters of Israel's weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now David and Jonathan, they were the best of friends, so it's very understandable to write such generous words to your best friend. Saul, on the other hand, is a rival. Saul wanted to kill David. And David is just very magnanimous towards Saul. He could have written so many negative things about Saul, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He writes the good about Saul. And then David gets more personal in verses 25 through 27. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, I have to address verse 26 because of our over-sexualized culture. It's really not something I want to do, but I feel I need to do. Because there are a lot of biblical scholars who use that verse to say that there was a gay relationship between David and Jonathan. Now, some argue that they're bisexual because they were both married and they had multiple children. I don't think that they're gay. I don't think that they're bisexual. Because the point of verse 26 is not sex, as our culture wants to make everything about. Verse 26 is about faithfulness devotedness, selflessness. Think about this. David is a murderer. David is an adulterer. He is a thief. He is a liar. He is a coveter. I just told you five of the Ten Commandments that he broke. Keep this in mind. Because do you think someone that is written about all his sins, breaking five big Ten Commandments, do you really think that he's afraid to come out of the closet? Do you really think that he's afraid of that? How many, how many of those did he break? And being gay and bisexual is not one of the Ten Commandments. So... Even though there are definitely sexual sins, whether straight, gay, bisexual, that we're all guilty of, with all of the sins David committed and repented of, do you really think that gay sex wouldn't have been recorded when his adulterous sex with Bathsheba is recorded, that his countless fornications and adulterous affairs with other wives and concubines is recorded, that wouldn't it have been recorded like all of his other sexual sins? But it's not. So no, he's not gay, he's not bisexual. And it's not the point of verse 26 anyway that people want to make it out to be. It's not about that. 
Jonathan, as did Saul, knew David would be king. And Jonathan said this, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 17, and he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Think about this. What crowned prince who is next in line to the king, to the throne, is willing to give that throne up to somebody else? Not a chance. No way, right? It's, it's kind of like your family has this huge inheritance. You're going to get this huge windfall of everything that your family had, and then you have your best friend, and you're like, you can have it. Are you kidding? There's no way. Only faithful servants that are devoted to God, that listen to God, will do it because God told them. And only a selfless person would do this. He is the best friend anyone could ever want that is going to listen to God and be so selfless. Now, I had to address that sexuality issue even though it's not the main point because our culture is just over-sexualized and I'm trying to head off the emails and texts and calls that I'm going to get even though I'm still expecting some. But the main point about this poem is mourning, lament, grief, that we all suffer, and there's something right about grieving, mourning, lamenting. You look at Jesus after he died on the cross. In Luke chapter 28, verse 31, it reads this, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They are mourning, they're grieving. After the resurrection, we find Mary Magdalene weeping in John chapter 20. There's something right about grief. It's right to grieve with others for others. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That there is an extension of care, empathy, sympathy, understanding that is with grief. That there's a right place for lament, for sadness, for grief, for mourning from the people of God. We know there's so much sadness around us. There's so much distress around us. And it's right for us to grieve for ourselves and for others. And I need to warn you to be careful around people who tell you, Get over it. It's been long enough. Get over it. Be careful. Because if we don't grieve in healthy ways, it has unhealthy outcomes. It comes out in unhealthy ways. Because hurt people hurt people. Right? And grief is the way for people to heal from their hurt. That there is a place for sadness. And you know what? You and I, we can afford to be sad, to grieve, to mourn, to lament, because the tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. And that empty tomb, the floor of that empty tomb, is the bottom floor of sadness, because it can't get any lower. That is the lowest it goes. And so when we go there, we're actually meeting a very, very special person. 
Prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We go back to the empty tomb. He knows our sorrows. He knows our grief. And he's victorious over them. See, the people of God have a place for sadness. And our Savior was very well acquainted with it. And there's no reason to hide it. There's no reason to hide your sadness, your grief, your mourning, your lament. Because everything is going to be exposed anyway. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for that empty tomb you resurrected from. Thank you for your word, what you leave for us, and what you tell us. I pray, God, that we would be able to see you clearly, to live our lives in in such a way, knowing that all is to be exposed, that we are to seek the truth, and that is you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. God, help us not to be so prideful to hold on to things that can change. You don't change. Lord, let us not hide from things that are actually good for us. And that process of sadness, that process of mourning and grieving, Help us to go through those things with you and in healthy ways so that we can minister to others who are in distress and in sadness also. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of humility as we go about our jobs and out into the world and living the rest of the week, that these opportunities to grieve with others and mourn with others present themselves to us and we can extend care, empathy, sympathy, understanding all the while directing them to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take communion together, and if you don't have any communion elements, just uh, stick up your hand and we can get that over to you. And we'll start with the wafer that's on the top of this. You know, I've been thinking at COVID, these guys must have, must have gone really rich, right? Like, <laughs> I hope they're tithing. (laughs) This wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. That sacrifice that he made from that cross to that empty tomb. We take this in remembrance of him. This fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. We take this in remembrance of Jesus until his return. Lord Jesus, thank you for these simple elements, yet such a profound reminder of your sacrifice, 
and a constant remembrance as we grieve that loss, so much hurt that you experience, so much pain and suffering and distress. And yet in this time of grace, Lord, just like the Amalekite, we have an opportunity to confess sins, to tell the truth before that judgment. And so we ask that that would happen, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.